Did you know that the average human spends 92,000 hours at work during their lifetime? That's more than we spend eating, cleaning, driving, watching TV, or even surfing the internet. In fact, work is what we do most. It comes second only to sleeping. Welcome to 92,000 Hours, the podcast that believes in the integration of life and work. I'm your host, Annalisa Holcomb. Before we begin, I wanted to tell you a quick story about why this podcast is so personal to me. I began practicing law at age 26 and learned many valuable lessons, including that I was deeply unhappy at work. Although I was on a path that looked like traditional success, I realized that I needed to quit my job in order to align myself with my passion and purpose. Now I am dedicated to making sure all of our 92,000 hours at work are spent well instead of simply spent. How do we construct a working world that values and accommodates our humanity? How do we construct a life that is not separate from, but fueled by, the purpose we find in our work? In this podcast, we will explore those questions and more. In each episode, I will speak to someone that demonstrates meaning, passion, and purpose in their work. Join me in discovering what happens when we bring our whole selves to our work, schools, and communities. Today, I am joined by Colin Bunker. Colin is the Director of Solutions Architecture at Presidio, a nationwide enterprise IT integrator. Simply put, Colin is the go-to person for me and so many others on all things IT, web application development, database administration, and cybersecurity. Most importantly, Colin is a loyal and dedicated employee, mentor, and friend. He was recently recognized for 20 years of service, and I want to read what his award says because it tells you everything you need to know about Colin and why I asked him to join me on today's episode. It reads, Colin has a high level of emotional intelligence, which is consistently demonstrated by his leadership style. His colleagues know he cares about them and that he's willing to be an advocate, confidant, and friend. When Colin is part of a team, the whole team functions at a higher level. He cares deeply for those he works with, is a good listener, and possesses a calming influence on the office. This is why I asked Colin to join me today to talk about a topic we normally don't discuss in work settings, love. Colin and I discuss companionate love based on warmth, affection, and connection, and how that impacts work outcomes. So let's jump in. What is your greatest accomplishment as a human being? What are you most proud about yourself for in terms of who you are? My relationships. So tell me more. Uh, over the course of my life, I've had to identify what I think a successful life means hmm. and what a quality person means. And to me, that is most demonstrated in how you impact the lives of the people closest to you. And so the thing I'm most proud of is my relationship with my spouse, with my kids, with my coworkers, with the people I spend the most time with, that I try hard to make sure that my impact on their lives is a positive one, that my presence in their life is a positive one and one that helps drive a better life for them. And so those relationships that I've developed and I've cultivated and I've invested in, is, in 
to me, of the greatest value and my biggest accomplishment. When you think about riches and success, that's that's your riches and your success. Absolutely, without question. So if I were to ask you, like if you're a person listening to this, what, how do you know when you've cultivated relationships that are that you're you are a positive impact in somebody's life? How do you know? I mean, clearly you, we can know that based upon what people say about you in this lovely um, award. But how do you know on a day-to-day basis? Uh, that's a good question. Um, for me, it would be and it, it's most easily determined i think for me in the cl- closer the relationship mm. but so if my my spouse or my children could identify that their life is better now than it was before or if it is moving in a positive direction if i have an influence on my ability to help them do that that would be maybe the evidence of that that's a good question plus you um, probably like with your with your family you can get more immediate feedback as well in yeah. some ways like families are usually more more comfortable telling people both good and bad yeah and, and part of the difficulty there is the gauge of what a better life means yeah and to me it's about them identifying their that their life is better on their terms not on mine mm-hmm. so our subject matter today is a topic that could be strange to everyone and i found this quote Uh, that said, love is not a word you often hear uttered in office hallways or conference rooms, and yet it has a strong influence on workplace outcomes. And I think that that's really interesting. Um, uh, This uh, researcher, her name is Sigal Barsad, and she talks about love, and she made it clear that we're talking about companionate love, which is love based on warmth, affection, and connection, not romantic passion. And it's not probably going to feel as strong as what romantic passion is it's probably a little lesser than but love is love and you can feel it and we should and and how do we acknowledge it so for me i'm interested i first of all i want to compliment you on being brave enough to have this conversation as as you and i know i like showed you the list of potential topics and everyone else had shied away like love i'm not going to talk about love and you were like i'm in let's do it so uh what made you decide that you would do that and um and then talk about it to me a little like what do when you when we first say like the ideas of love and work when you first knew you were going to talk about this like what comes to your mind how like what what was that like for you to think okay i'm gonna go talk about love and work it felt natural to me Ooh. and maybe that's weird that's awesome i guess that's weird based on what you've just said but it it seems very natural because love Again, not the romantic piece, but the com- the companionate piece is underpins every relationship. It underpins how I see the world. Hmm. And if based my value stack, what I value in life, people are at the top of that stack. And you cannot do that without love. Like love is what drives that. Love is what enables that and makes it potent. How do you? How is that present for you? Like, tell me, what what do you mean by it and how do you talk about it? Or do you? Like, what is it like for you to have that and then put it to work in your life? It means to me that what I do is not nearly as important as why I do it. Hmm. And the why I do it is about the people. And it's about, I go to work every day not to sell a product or to fix an IT problem, but to 
better, help better the lives of the people around me. And when I do that, and if they do that, and if we all do that, we all live better lives aggregately. And the way I, I do that is I, I genuinely try, I don't try, I, I want to care about the people I work with. And wanting to care about the people I work with enables me to spend the time and the effort and the energy to get to know them, to understand their values, to understand what drives them, and then help them enable that in their lives and help them succeed at those things. We talk about all sorts of things in terms of culture, but often leaders are not thinking about, or maybe some of them are, but, but we're not talking about it and making it really clear and intentional that it's important to have an emotional culture at your work. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in you telling me a little bit of stories about what that has meant to you, what it does mean to you. Do you have like personal anecdotes about what that's like? Tell sure. me about emotional culture at work. Emotional culture at work. That, to me, it's recognizing when people need, what people need when they need it. Uh, understanding them as an individual and understanding their, what's impacting them and how they're impacting others and listening to them and then helping them work through whatever it is they're experiencing and seeing them as a whole, seeing that, seeing them as an individual and not just a cog in a machine. And it, it goes beyond just, well, you're having a hard day, so I'm gonna listen to you and we're gonna spend that time. It goes to recognizing the values that they bring, the strengths that they have, and helping them fit as an individual and see themselves as a part of this of a greater thing as opposed to just being a cog in the machine. That, that I push this button or I fix that thing or I do whatever, but I bring value to this place uniquely because they recognize who I am, what I am, and that that is value to them and not just a thing to work around. How have you experienced that when you felt that way? I felt that I felt both not that way and that way in a work environment. Uh, when I first started working, and I was slinging computers and installing them, and I was I I was tracked very meticulously on hours spent on what, and no one recognized at the time what I could bring. Mm-hmm. They saw me for my my output and that was it and that felt very cold I didn't feel that there was no feeling to it and maybe that was the issue and humans have feeling we all have feeling whether we want to admit it or not we all have feeling and we're feeling most of the time and there was no place for that and there was no recognition of the value I could bring Mm. and then I changed managers I changed who I reported to to somebody who recognized what I could bring and they adapted my role and adapted what I was doing to leverage who I was instead of just what I could do. So they said they saw you. They did. They saw who I. They, they saw the value I could bring. They saw that they saw more than just the output I could produce. What was that experience like? Did the person like sit down and talk to you about it? Like, was it over time? How do you develop that kind of knowledge of your colleagues? Uh, time. Hmm. Uh, it genuinely caring about that individual enough to get to know them and to see beyond the tasks that they do. For me, it was, I felt that I wasn't valued. And so I got another job and I put in my resignation. And then that manager came to me and said, Hey, if you reported to me and we did this different thing, would you stay? Hmm. And I said, yes. And then I was there for another 
18 years. <laughs> um, because I felt like I was seen and I was able to use who I was to improve other people's lives. So there was a, I mean, so we're, we could talk about this underpinning of my knowledge of you is this um, is a being part of a team that was all about the the who each other were like tell me about that what how do you what was that like how did you how did it play out in your daily life uh, it played out yeah in multiple ways so it depends on what you mean by how did it play out we we spent a lot of time together in the trenches fighting together. We spent a lot of time getting to know each other while we worked. It wasn't like we were sitting around and just hanging out, but we, we would spend the time to get to know each other. And we would do things that were not always um, appreciated by people who were task-oriented. We would walk, we would take the team and walk to 7-Eleven, get away from the work, get away from the tasks, and just converse about who we were and what we were doing and getting to know at a deeper level what drives each other. And when you do that, you start to find ways to fit like a puzzle mm. and to know where each other's boundaries are and who's got what strengths and who's got what weaknesses and what to watch out for and when to step in to help that person because you know they're, they're, they're going to struggle there. And so you know that that's when I'm going to step in and help or understanding each other allows you to function as a team as opposed to just a machine as a result of having that um more emotional culture what did you guys as a team what was that what was that like in that team um did you know about each other's personal lives did you you know celebrate i i believe that you have to celebrate successes you have to be there for each other in terms of like your whole self did did that exist was that part of the emotional culture or was it different? Because I don't know the answer. It was, and it differs based on person. There are some people who are very comfortable sharing their personal lives and whom we all knew what was going on in their life. There are other people who don't do that, and that's okay. But we also knew what they needed professionally. We knew who they were as a person and what, how they needed to function in the work environment, what their strengths were, what their weaknesses were, how we, how we could support them and it, it wasn't required that you come in and share every detail of your personal life mm -hmm. it was that we cared about you either way and to some people blending the personal and the professionals need they need that they, they need to be able to talk about this thing that happened to them or or what they're doing on the weekend some people don't want to do that and that's totally fine they just integrated a little bit differently but they, even those people came to value the love in the workplace and how when they were having a bad day, the team rallied around them and they would rally around their teammates and they would be a part of that because they know that they were cared for. What did that feel like for you? How did you know that you were cared for? Because when I would have hard times, they would be at my doorstep. Do you have a specific example? Sure. When. Uh, my youngest child was born. He came a month early and spent two weeks in the NICU. Mm -hmm. And clearly a pretty stressful time. And my health declined pretty rapidly during that two weeks to where I went to the doctor and they identified that I had a form of uh, bone cancer. Oh my gosh. 
And so I was all at the same time, all at the same time. So I was out of work for almost a month dealing with my child in, in the ICU and then working with the doctors to figure out what was wrong with me. And there was an absolute, and it it came at the start of school Hmm. at the absolute worst time possible. And all I got from my workmates were do take care of you. What can we do? How can we help? It, it's a very, I played a leadership role and it was a very crucial part of our, our year, the most crucial part of our year. And I got no sense of blowback or anger or frustration. All I got was you stay home, you take care of you, you be well. And we got this. That is so, like it actually gets to me because I think like in the, in the grand scheme of your life, what an, like, that is a that's a pinch point. That's like one of the more important times when you had when you were the most vulnerable, and the people that you and and however your work. Like when we say that we're separating out work and home, if you were to say that you separated those things out, if you didn't have this culture, this these relationships with these people who care about you as a human being, who care about your newborn son, who care about your health first, it would have been a completely different experience. Yeah. But it's also complicated. Yeah. Because, especially if you are managing these people, you have to be also be able to have the difficult conversation. You also have to be able to, usually you don't pull your friend aside and let them know that their behavior needs to change. That there may be consequences if their behavior doesn't change. Tell me about that when you feel like you're both friends and leaders. Like, how do you, how have you managed that? So, friends is an interesting word. Yeah. Uh, most of my coworkers, I don't put in the same category as exactly friend. I care about them. I care about them the way I would a friend. But you also have to, they have to understand the reality of the workspace hmm. and that. We are all striving for the same common goal. And and I guess, if I, if I put it in real terms, it isn't that different than a friend because now that I've learned these realities, I would be more brutal with a friend when necessary. That the hard conversation is more important the closer you are to a person. Hmm. And it's, a, it's, a, it's actually a way to show love is to tell them, is yeah. to have that conversation. Yeah. I, I think that we don't have hard conversations not because we don't want to hurt other people's feelings, but because... We, we don't want to be the bad person. We don't want to... It's more sheltering our own ego and our own sense of safety and our own sense of not wanting to hurt other people's feelings. Like, it's more about us than it is about them. Mm. And if you really care about somebody, you're going to go have that horrible conversation because they're headed for a dark place. And if you really care about them, you're going to have that hard conversation early and often. Because you don't want them to get to a place to where the relationship is fully broken. Hmm. And because that's usually when someone has to be let go or someone has to be moved on. And so if you really do care about somebody, you're having a hard conversation. You're having it early and you're having it often. Because that's the only way to preserve the relationship. If this conversation has caught your attention and you want to join in on conversations like this, check out our website 
at connectioncollaborative.com. Welcome back. You're listening to 92,000 Hours, and today we are chatting with Colin Bunker. Tell me about what you think. One of the things that I'm interested in is the idea, I've talked about this a lot recently, is the idea about love and, and our discussions that we have about loving what you do. Um, and I've had some complicated discussions about that with people on this podcast, actually, about using like what the kind of pressure that puts on people or not on people and i'm interested in your thoughts about that like the word love and loving what you do it's a thing that we talk about in our yeah like in our society generally and we're not afraid about we don't talk about loving who you work with but we do talk about loving what you're doing at work that's simpler yeah so tell tell me what does that mean that's simpler uh loving people usually means giving something up what do you mean? I can't take everything and love other people at the same time. Hmm. I can't take what I want and care about the person I'm taking it from at the same time. Wow. Love is typically a give, not a take. And so... And so That's you, amazing. That's super important what you just said. It is. And loving what you do very often is about taking what you want, is often what people mean by that. But it doesn't have to be. But very often people say, oh, I love what I do, and I'm going out and doing it, and that's very true. And sometimes people are wicked successful on their scales for that. But what they've ultimately done is taken from other people. Wow. And they've taken what they wanted. And they love that. They love that they have, they have now what they want. But for me, that's not what I want. That, that's not what drives me. That's not what, what I do, actually, has nothing to do with, right now, our company sells product and sells services. And I, I do enjoy that. Like, that part of the job I do enjoy. I'm, I'm good with technology. I'm good with that piece that I don't want to portray that that's not valuable and important. It is. But what I do is I care about people. And that's ultimately what I do. I don't want to sell somebody a thing that they don't need or isn't going to benefit them or isn't going to help them achieve their outcomes. I want to, I want to care for that person. And the way we do that right now is we sell them a product. We sell them a service. We, we do those technology-oriented motions, but it w- at least for me, I do it because I want to care about that person. I want that person to live a better life. And the, the means by which I have right now is, is that. But what I do will always be care about people. It, in my mind, it's got a lot to do with the industrialization of our society. That we went from at the root of us as a species requiring tribes, we evolved to require membership in a tribe, that collaboration as a, as a group is what took us beyond that of, of apes and, and other similar animals, that us survive, that we are genetically engineered to require community. Mm-hmm. And we industrialized that society and we have dehumanized a lot of our roles and turned people into basically cogs in a machine. And that dehumanizes it. And it's easier to lead a machine than it is to lead people. It takes investment, effort, and emotion, and honestly sorrow a lot of times to invest in people and 
know people and work with people, it's a lot easier to treat them like a cog. And when one's broken, you throw it away and you put another one in and then it keeps running and you just replace them like a machine. And that's the way our society has evolved. And it's getting more amplified in the internet age where our brain chemistry require that we be a part of a community. We got, there's chemical reward that happens in our brain when we, when we are part of a community, when, when we interact with other humans. And some of that can be simulated through the internet, but it's in a very transitory, impermanent way. And we are disconnecting from each other and disconnecting from community in a lot of ways. And it's damaging and it's scary. And we need to reestablish those types of behaviors in our lives, I believe. I think that work is not sad. We spend a lot of our time at work. It's really where we spend the bulk of our life. And I don't want to live my life outside of community. I want to live my, my life in a community. That's so wonderful to hear you say that. I love uh, you, you how do, and, and how important it is to create that community where we are. Everywhere. Yeah. So you, uh, this is really important because uh, you brought up sorrow. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you, I've been reading a lot. Uh, I met this other researcher named Monica Warline. She's really great. And she talks about compassion at work that we, how important it is that we have compassion. And she juxtaposes that with in order to have compassion, you have to acknowledge suffering and that we have to actually acknowledge that we that suffering occurs at work. Absolutely. And um, and that we may have even been the cause of it. It's like, you know, the workplace itself, our relationships with other people, etc. I'm interested in how have you seen or witnessed compassion at work? I've seen it when <clears throat> when I've had struggles and people are there for me. And sometimes my struggles bleed onto them. If I'm having difficulty outside of the workplace, that bleeds in. It, it does for all of us, whether we want to admit it or not. When we are struggling as an individual, it bleeds in. And the people I worked with when I recently went through a struggle with one of my children, they were there for me. And In what ways? How did they show their compassion? Uh, a, they would listen to me. They would recognize that something they could see in me based on our, our relationship and how long we've been, we'd worked together. They could look at me and know something was off and they would ask and they would spend the time to listen. Actually listen, like Actually be present. Listen. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it went beyond that. I, my oldest child identified as transgendered three years ago. And as a parent, there's a lot of concerns that are wrapped up in that. There's a lot of wanting to understand what's going on with your child. There's a lot of emotion involved. And, and uncertainty about... Uncertainty, yeah. all sorts of things. Like there, there's lots of different emotion involved in that. And and you bring it to work. You can't help it. Yeah. <laughs> you, you try not to, but you are one person, mm -hmm. right? And so it's going to be with you no matter where you are. And especially a large thing. And a large thing about somebody you deeply care about. And my coworkers not only showed acceptance and love towards me and my child, mm. but they would go out of their way to help me make a difference for my child. Awesome. What did they do? Uh, show up to the Pride Parade to support not just the, the, the Pride Festival and the LGBTQ community, 
but my child specifically. And made your child feel welcome. More than welcome. Made them feel accepted for who they were. Awesome. Which is a deeper, more important thing. I'm really interested in that because it also, in some ways, like from a macro perspective, that experience not only helped your child, but probably also helped them to understand acceptance and how like their act of acceptance also creates a bigger sense of what that looks like for them too. Absolutely. It's a cascading effect. I had a, um, I read a, a uh, an article that was about um, emotional culture at work and um, and how it is contagious, right? Like um, that, that, that if it's either, if it's great or not, we feel it and it, and we catch it. And that often, so I'm interested in, in that, like have you seen it, how, how does that work for us? And, and I'm interested in hearing you talk about that as how important the leader's emotion, like understanding of their own leadership in terms of emotional culture and how that is contagious in, with them works. Does that make sense? I don't even know what I'm really asking, but. So you have a couple interesting words there. Leader is an interesting word. Yeah. Uh, a manager and a leader are different things. Clearly different things. And if you are charged with supervising a group of people, you are by definition a manager, in my opinion, and not a leader. And a manager Not necessarily. You could be. Yes. Well, anybody can be a leader. Yeah. Leadership is a thing that anybody can, can do at any level in the organization. Uh, being a supervising over people in no way connotates whether you're a leader or not. But by being their supervisor, your emotional energy has a direct impact on the people you supervise whether you want it to or not. Hmm. And that's a moment when a manager needs to be a leader. They need to set a tone because they don't have a choice as to whether or not their emotional energy impacts it impacts them because our emotional energy impacts everybody we come in contact with. Mm-hmm. But a manager slash supervisor, they have an outsized impact on the people that report to them. Mm-hmm. And it's of even greater importance that they, and it's not about being inauthentic. It's not about never having a hard day. It's not about never making a mistake. But it is about trying to project positive, and word energy I'm uncomfortable with, but positive emotion and positive caring around people that you work with. You set a tone when you manage people. And the tone that that manager, and that amplifies as it goes up an organizational chart, that, 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 whatever they project will be Like that, that emotional culture. Like it's who we are. Yeah. Yeah. And the value set of the manager gets cascaded and people will either buy in or buy out. And that, I wonder if that's like, you know, we always hear that saying of, um, you don't quit a job, you quit a boss. Oh, that's totally true. And I, I wonder how much of that actually ends up coming from this particular discussion. Like, how much of that is not the particular job that the boss gives you, but it's it's the culture that they've created, like the way that you emotionally emotionally feel, but may not even have the the language to talk about at work. Yeah. And I, I think it's also important to recognize that it isn't a binary. There isn't good and bad. There's authentic and inauthentic, but there isn't good and bad. That's interesting. Tell me more about that. So we all are who we are. We all actually we all have real value stacks, whether we're in touch with it and understand it or not. We do, and not everybody 
has people at the top of their value stack. Now, people listen to Brene Brown, and they go, oh, I should be vulnerable. I should be this. But you don't... But if they don't actually value it, they they just think they should. They go around and they, they, they talk about that, and they say they're this, but they're not... It actually is bad, and it, it, it creates people know they're not being authentic, and it undermines trust, which is an absolute requirement to build a positive relationship. And so they, people, leaders need to be really in touch with who they actually are, not what they think is they should be. Right. Whatever and, the current leadership literature says you're supposed to look like right now. Yeah. Because people are going to see what you actually value and how you act. You may think you should be vulnerable, but if you don't value vulnerability and you're not practicing that thing right now, people see that and they feel that. And that undermines, like I said, that trust. If they came out and said, you know what, what I value is outcomes and what I value is this other thing, that's fine. Be that person and that people who value that will, will flock around you and will be around you and you can have a community of people who value other things. It's not where I want to be. I want to be in a community and a culture that values people. That's what I value. And it's not that other values are wrong. It's just not where I want to be. And it's not what will make my life better. And the worst thing a leader can do is not be authentic with who and what they are. Hmm. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is, um, you know, I, I probably sound like I'm really excited and interested in all this, in the idea of emotional culture and the idea of, of love at work, companionate love, but of course there's uh, there can be shadow sides to some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I've looked at, I've been reading a lot about this because um, I read these studies that say that calling, something that can come from this is saying like, we're a family here. Um, and I read some studies that say that calling work a family can actually be detrimental because it can put employees in difficult spots. Like employees might do more than they should. They might feel pressured to do to do the extra mile that they're not that they might be taken advantage of by their company. But they're trying to do it to be part of the family because we feel a responsibility for our family, but the but the so-called family may not be as ultimately as responsible for us as as is reciprocal. I'm interested in, because I'm reading that and I'm feeling conflicted in lots of ways. I'm interested in your thoughts about that. That, I think that's a difficult conversation because most of us have a fraught relationship with family. Yeah. Family is a tribe and a community. You, it, it, my parents and my siblings were not a tribe that I chose. It's a tribe I was assigned. Now, my spouse and my children, to some degree, are, are, are a tribe I chose. But I didn't choose who my kids were, per se. Like... They are who they are. And family is a different construct. But I do want to reflect personally the type of relationship and community I try to build within my family at work. I think that I actually feel bad for people who maybe have such a relationship with their family that they wouldn't want to replicate that type of relationship at work. Yes, I have a different relationship with my spouse. Like, clearly. Like, there's a romantic love there. There's a different thing going on there. But the underpinning of that relationship is the same as any other relationship. It's amplified, but it's the same concept. And I recently worked at a place where uh, the concept of calling your work community a family was demonized and was, was said to be a bad thing. And I think that was problematic. And 
we had created what I felt like was a positive community. And yes, there were times when we worked late and we worked late because we cared about other people. But I actually see the opposite as being more true where people don't feel like they're a part of a community or part of a quote unquote family at work and they feel scared, they, they work late, not because they love people but, or because they love what they do, but because they're afraid of getting fired. Hmm. That's usually more often the case. Uh, or they work in horrible conditions. Why? Because they don't feel like they have a future or they don't know where they could fit in outside of this awful condition. And we create a better environment, we create a better culture when we do treat people like we treat the people we care about the most. I agree with you. I totally agree with you. That's why I'm feeling so conflicted when I read it, I think. It's so hard. Um, but it, underneath it all, there's the witches, right? Like, I know that I felt at a place where I have felt really known and seen that I've worried that maybe I'm pro I may be working harder than I'm getting uh, uh, monetarily compensated for. And yet I felt so good about the ultimate... Um, part of the meaning of my work that it like that that was my value more than the dollars and I felt like I was getting that value yes the, the concept around am I getting my am I being paid what I'm worth is a very fraught and difficult conversation mm -hmm. living in America as a white straight cis male I am incredibly privileged and 98% of the world does not have access to the income that I have access to. And most of them work probably as easily as hard as I do every day, probably harder. And so am I being compensated for what I'm worth? That's a difficult concept. And I think that if you're going to value your output on the dollar, then you can make a tremendous amount of money in the United States. And you should go do that. Like that, if, if that's what you value and that's what you want to do, go do that. But it's a very different thing when you add in caring for people and wanting to live a whole life. I can't help myself because I feel like we're, we're talking about work organizations, but, but it's just in my nature to want to talk about all the other organizations that we're involved in. And I am and thinking a lot about um, our society right now and... Um, I feel like there are some talk, we do talk a little bit in our society about the need to love each other and to be compassionate, but, I, but, we're, but there may be inauthenticity there as well. I'm, I'm just really struggling with that whole concept, this concept of love and compassion on this broader scale and how I see how we're dealing with it, how that affects us organizationally how it affects us familially you know like it, I just feel like there's a big like a broader concept happening I don't know how to articulate it but I'm wondering if like there's that's there's something that resonates there with you as well <laughs> I totally agree I, we are very much as a society not seeing each other and when we don't see each other we project ourselves harder hmm. and it's everybody projecting not always their best sides as hard as they can to try to be seen and most people I think a great deal of people right now are not members of strong communities our communities are breaking down our communities are falling apart and people are looking to the internet to find answers and often when that happens they end up in 
fringe communities that perpetuate not the best of ideals and you get groupthink and you don't end up having your ideas challenged and then when people do come together they're just hammering on each other they're not seeing each other or trying to see each other how are you as a parent working on that in your like in a, in a place that you can do you know like or creating your own emotional culture in your household that's hard yeah like, there's nothing more important to me than being a parent and helping your kids be prepared for the world and preparing them in a way that they will succeed and help other people succeed but not get wrecked along the way. I, I, don't, I, I would love to say I have all the answers and I certainly don't. Uh, what I try to do is primarily lead, as, lead by example for them that when they see that I spend hours just in conversation with them listening to them, hearing them, making sure that I understand their views, even if I have a different view. And as a parent, sometimes my view has to be the one that we do, but it doesn't mean their view is bad or that their view is wrong or that they're invalid and making sure that they hear and feel that, that they know that they're heard and felt, hmm. that somebody cares what they think and feel. I think that resonates for all of us, like not just in our home and with our children, but at work, in our organizations, in our religious organizations, in our political organizations, people want to know that they're valued. Yeah, I think as one of the traps we all fall into is we want, we have an idea of what an ideal life is. We all do. And we have a tendency to project that onto other people and to want our best life for them. But that isn't the way life works. We all have our own view of what a best life is. And it's every one of our jobs to enable the other person's best life, mm. to enable them to live their best life, not ours. And it's when we start to project our best lives onto other people that we get into real conflict. If I'm empowering your best life and you're empowering mine, then we aren't going to live the same life and they're going to look very different. But we can both live long, happy, successful, fruitful lives. It's when I project mine onto you and say, well, you know what, the best life is live this way, so that's how you should live. That's A, me not seeing you, me not understanding you, and it's me being narcissistic. My goal, especially with my children, is to understand what what they feel would be their best life. Now, as a parent, I have some outsized role in helping them shape that probably, but that translates to every relationship in my life. Mm. That it's not about me projecting my best life onto them, but me genuinely understanding who they are, what drives them, and what will produce the best outcomes for them, and then enabling and empowering that. I can't give it to them, but hopefully I can enable it and empower it for them. I can, I can knock down barriers or I can be a cheerleader on the sideline or I can cry with them when they need to cry. But it, I don't, I think where we break our children or we break each other in society again is when we have decided what would be best for someone else and we project that onto them. And we need to not do that. We need to hear what they feel would be best for them and then enable it and empower it. And maybe 
where that gets complicated is where what's best for them overlaps with what's best for you. And that's when life happens. That's when we negotiate. That's when we both make sacrifices. But that only happens when we see each other. I love that. You just taught me the how of how I'm going to, like, how to work on this. Well done. It's really, it's amazing. Um, I want to ask you a couple of last questions. One is, as you know, I'm really passionate about the role of mentors or coaches in our lives. Have you had any particular mentor that was important to you? And if so, what lessons did they impart? I've had many. Um, some in small ways, some in small, incredibly impactful ways, hmm. and some in, in, in um, my former boss, Robert Allred, was a big impact on me. He genuinely cared for people. His love for the individual and wanting to see them and care for them and sacrifice for them uh, had a deep impact on me. Um, I had a friend in high school who has a huge personality and was very impactful on me and teaching me around the value of human connection, the value of having community and being a part of something. Uh, my spouse is a huge impact on me. She is a genuine and authentic human being. Hmm. And she has impacted upon me the, the importance and value of always being authentic in who you are. And that when we hide who we are, you make it impossible for that other person to see you. And Which makes the love even harder. It makes it impossible. You can't care for a person if you can't see them. And the more you hide yourself from them, the more they are not actually even able to care for you. And if you've disabled that, how can community and tribalism and all these other things that we need actually occur if we can't see each other. My sincere thanks to Colin for his willingness to speak about love and work. You can connect with Colin on LinkedIn. As always, thank you for listening to 92,000 Hours. This episode concludes our first season. As some of you may know, we recorded this season before the COVID-19 pandemic. Since then, so much of our day-to-day -day lives have changed. In season two, we will be discussing work and life integration during such an unprecedented time. We will be exploring what it means to be a frontline worker or to be a full-time employee and a full-time teacher to your children. We will be talking about big emotions like grief, fear, and loneliness. How do we move forward when we don't know what lies ahead? How do we authentically connect in a time of such physical and emotional disconnection? We will attempt to answer these questions and more. Join us at the start of the new year for season two of 92,000 Hours. And if you enjoyed this season, please subscribe and leave us a review. We really appreciate your support. Ninety Two Thousand Hours is made possible by Connection Collaborative. This episode was produced and edited by Brianna Stegel. Lexi Banks is our marketing director, and I'm your host, Annalisa Holcomb. <music>